Hey, I just wanted to get in front of this podcast to let you all know that this podcast has adult themes and adult language because this one's a little more loose. And if that is not your cup of tea, bye, Felicia. That's going to be most of this podcast, probably. Uh, ciao. No one shall ever know the truth behind that fateful day. Artorgius went forth to where the brilliant sword did slay. Twas the first of many feats so great, a legend through and through. We sing of Artorgus, the noble and the brave. Many people know the story of King Arthur, or rather, they think they do. And on today's podcast, we're going to go through the many, 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 many iterations of King Arthur's tale, the things it's inspired, and much more here on Cavalcade of Tales. Hey everybody, welcome back to Cavalcade of Tales, the podcast that mixes myth, folklore, movies, TV, video games, and the like, to show that we've been telling stories forever. I'm your host, Drew, the millennial with a history degree, and I'm going to real quick apologize for the uh, long time between uploads. I uh, had some fun chest colds and anxiety attacks, but we're back and we've got a fun episode ahead of us here. It's a bit more loose, this episode. Um, as you saw in the opening, today we're going to talk about the Arthurian canon, which, in my professional opinion, is the messiest bitch of all folklore and mythology canons. It is wild. There are at least three separate traditions going off, like just historical traditions, because you have the British, the French, and the Welsh traditions on top of how everybody loves the story of King Arthur and loves doing their own version of it. To prove how vast this canon is, the opening little paragraph that I read today is not actually from a text. That is from the Noble Knight Arturagus monster card from Yu-Gi-Oh! It has even influenced card games. So this is a fledgling podcast, and we're still trying to kind of figure out what works and what doesn't. So I'm calling this episode a lore dump episode, where I do my best to use all of the hundreds of thousands sources involved to try to tell you the tales of King Arthur and his knights and... There's going to be so much, and so this episode's going to have a little bit of a looser feel because it's a lot of... I have some notes taken, but it's going to be more freeform. It's like, it's supposed to be more like I'm going to sit here and I'm going to tell you a story today. Um, I will be including stuff from the French-Welsh traditions. I've got... I haven't read The Once and Future King. I'm currently looking at it. It is sitting on my coffee table. I have not even read it yet, but I plan to. I've got some notes taken from influences from a mobile game. I've got some notes about the cult classic 1975 film Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, we're just going to kind of go into it and just see what we're working with here. And uh, I apologize in advance because I do a thing which has been dubbed the Jersey Pause, which is a little pejorative, and I apologize to the people of Jersey. 
but sometimes when I'm trying to think of a word, I'll use just say fuck to hold the space. Uh, so there might be a few of those today, and I apologize in advance if that's uncomfortable for you. But uh, I'm going to try today to just uh, tell you a fun little story and see how that works for us. I hope you have fun. So to begin Arthur's tale, we actually need to talk about a few things before Arthur. To set him in a certain time of place, a lot of the accolades given to Arthur is that he is the one who drove the Saxons out of Britain. The Anglo-Saxon time period would make that around the 7th century, which would be about the 600s. Um, and I'm also just going to put out right now, I am not here to debate if he was real or if he wasn't real. There's a lot of fantastical aspects of this story. Um, historians are mixed on whether he's real or not. That's not the purpose of today's story. Another thing to kind of set ourselves in a place is we need to do a quick primer on the character Merlin. Uh, a lot of people remember Merlin as like the sidekick. Uh, he was, I want to say, the brunette in uh, BBC's Merlin, which everybody really wanted him and Arthur to get together. There, He was the crazy old man in The Sword and the Stone. He's often depicted in a bunch of different ways. Um, in some traditions, the way that Merlin works is that he actually ages backwards, like a Benjamin Button kind of thing, where he was born an old man and is slowly just going to get younger and younger until he, be, you know, dies as an infant, I guess. I don't know, I never watched The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, but it's weird. There's also the sticky situation of Merlin's parentage, because he is half human, half incubus. Uh, in some stories, Merlin is what happens when a group of fanatics attempt to create the Antichrist by having his mother mate with an incubus and assuming that that incubus is carrying, I'll, I'll put it politely, the seed of Satan within him and that the baby that were born would be the Antichrist. But that didn't work. Instead, it just made a really powerful wizard who, in some traditions, ages backwards. He, I don't know why I made that comment, actually, about him dying, because he is immortal. And he is said to live in a tower surrounded by flowers. And he is both, he both exists in our time and outside of time. And is just waiting for the fall of man, which, based off of what we've been doing to the planet and uh, how we can't go 10 minutes without killing each other, I would say about, I don't know, 20 to 30 years tops. So those are a couple things I just need to get out of the way to begin with before we really get into the tale. So our story begins in Cornwall, where the current king, Uther Pendragon, is visiting with the duke there to discuss issues around a castle being built and the uh, front on these Saxon invaders. Um, he brings Merlin, a trusted advisor, with him, and upon arriving at the castle, they are warmly greeted by Igraine, the Duchess of Cornwall, and Uther immediately becomes smitten with the Duchess. He's like, I am the king, 
that duchess is good looking. I need an heir. So I need to get with the duchess. However, the duchess is a good Christian woman because all Arthurian myth has both this very religious undertone, but also, especially in the French tradition, because they're kind of making fun of the British, um, has this like subversion of a lot of Christian themes, which I can get into uh, much more detail in some of the later tales. So Igraine refuses his advances, and the Duke is called out to go see to a battle. And so from there, Uther goes to Merlin. He's like, hey, I really want to get with the Duchess. I need an heir. Let's figure something out. And Merlin's like, cool, um, we're going to do some fucked up sex shit. Good thing I'm half incubus. Um, so what he does is he uses his magic to transform Uther into the likeness of the Duke of Cornwall. And then he proceeds to go bed the Duchess and produce an heir because of that weird incubus sex magic, I guess. And that is the conception of Arthur and is both, which is really interesting because it's also like a very prideful thing for the people of Cornwall. I've heard on some things that the people of Cornwall are very proud that Arthur is of Cornwallian, Cornwallian, I don't know if that's the term, heritage, but it's also like a little fucked up that it was through false pretenses with their duchess, but um, say la vie, I guess. From there, uh, most versions of the story skip about 10 to 13 years later uh, after Uther has died and allegedly he has an heir, but nobody knows where he is. So before, in order to figure out who the true rightful king of England is, there is a sword of selection, which is known as Caliburn. This is an important point of contention because a lot of people believe that the sword in the stone is Excalibur, which in some of the quicker traditions it is, but in most traditions, Caliburn is the sword that is in the stone. And in, I want to say the Once in Future King, I've heard somewhere that it's an anvil, not a stone, which who the hell knows. I think they actually had it in like an anvil in the movie Quest for Camelot that came out in the 90s, I want to say that the sword was in some sort of anvil-like thing near the end. That's a good movie. I should have included some notes about that in here. Um, anyway, <laughs> see, this is what I'm talking about loosely. This is, I'm telling you a story today. So there is a young page named Art who is following his brother, quote-unquote, to go, uh, Sir Kay is the knight. And so Arthur, also cutely shortened to as Art, is learning how to become a squire for his older brother. And so squire, his first job as a squire is to follow Sir Kay, his older brother, to go to the Sword of Selection to see if Sir Kay is the worthy king of England. Because everybody has a sneaking suspicion that the um, somewhere in Cornwall is where this alleged heir is. And so Sir Kay, who is, I want to say, the nephew? The family tree changes all the time. I'm going to go with nephew of the Duke for my narrative here. Uh, 
he wants to go test and see and you know so arthur's first job is as a squire to go assist his brother to see if he is the true king once there uh push comes to shove k is not the knight which um is a problem because uh, in certain traditions sir k is very temperamental and brutish um he uh is one of the older meaner bullies brothers in the sword and the stone on the disney adaptation that's one of them is sir k uh but he does get his in some traditions he gets his act together um and as a joke he was like he was making fun of the other squires being like my little brother art is a better squire than y'all i bet you know he could pull the sword to selection and whoops he does so it is found out that arthur is the technically bastard son of the king and is the rightful king of england and in a fun turn of events uh, sir Kay immediately swears loyalty to him and decides that it is time to teach arthur how to be a knight um insert fun training montage here that i don't have any notes on apparently uh yeah no um it's important to note that uh even though at this point arthur's main sword is caliburn it's not really a good sword it's kind of just a ceremonial kind of thing and it's the proof of kingship so when he goes around and he's like i am king of england and people are like why are you king of england he's like well look at this fucking sword i pulled out of a rock um think it's a fun play even on the scene in monty python and the holy grail where since he tells the villagers he has scalibur so he is their rightful king and they say uh watery tarts tossing swords is not in a form of is not an effective means of government uh jokes on those peasants it wasn't the lady of the lake it was actually he just pulled it out of a big fucking rock um once arthur is a little older and established that's when the creation of the round table begins and this is an interesting thing because in i believe the french and the welsh traditions this is where the arthur's family tree kind of gets sorted out a little bit and he's got a half sister named morgan le fay who i will touch back on later there's he has a nephew named gawain or gawain there's like and when you read it it makes it seem like as he starts filling out this round table of knights it's very nepotism because for example sir Kay, his older brother is actually the first of the knights of the round table he then proceeds to get a few more um in monty python um some of them are actual knights you do get a lancelot you do have a bedivere you do have a galahad uh sir robin is not a real knight unfortunately sir robin the cowardly uh and it goes without saying but there is no sir not appearing in this film uh but there is that sort of call to action where the knights are called in 
and they create the round table, which is to show equality. And they stand for the Arthurian things of chivalry, which is its own complicated mess. So since we are talking about the messiest bitch of all the Arthurian canons, there are multiple different beliefs about the four core values that make up an Arthurian knight and their code of chivalry. Um, the four I'm choosing for this story are going to be honor, valor, honesty, and loyalty. Uh, traits which in multiple different tales are shown to not be the case that any of these knights have some of these. Um, I think real quick I'm going to tell the story of some of these knights and give some background on some of the more famous knights that are going to come up in these tales and then we'll hit, come back to Arthur and what he's doing. The first of the knights I'm going to go for is Lancelot. Um, Lancelot is considered the strongest and most noble of all the knights. He becomes very prominent in the French tradition, if you can tell from his French-sounding name, Lancelot. Uh, he is a staunch believer in justice, honoring women, and despising evil. Uh, he is the knight that has also some of the most screen time in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and is one of the three knights that survive the entire film. He is uh, later arrested at, um, for having, uh, because there is a man who is murdered by some random knight and they just start taking all the knights. But um, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, it shows his sort of valorous nature that he believes that a young princess is being held against her will and being uh, forced to marry in a tower and thus he goes in and slaughters half the inhabitants of that castle and uh, then finds out it's a prince to his much dismay uh, his weapon is known as the sword Adron Knight, which shines blue light as though it is a lake um, in certain traditions, Lancelot is raised by Nimuang, who is the fairy of the lake. Um, I believe that's also in the French tradition as well, because the French tradition love Lancelot. There are some Arthurian scholars who believe that part of what happens to Lancelot later on has to do with a un not being able to deal with an attraction to Arthur as he is as a person um, because it's the 600s and no one truly knows how to deal with bi panic but I will get into Lancelot a bit more later on because he becomes a very crucial point uh, in I don't want to in the cliche is the third act but I have no idea how many acts I'm putting in here um, another soldier soldier another knight is uh, Gawain in most traditions Gawain is King Arthur's nephew of uncertain parentage um, in the studio 24 uh, movie the green knight which is an adaptation of Gawain's m most famous story uh, his mother is Morgan Le Fay 
but that is not concurrent over certain traditions. Um, I will touch on the story of the Green Knight in more detail in a little bit. Um, Gawain is uh, considered one of the oldest among the knights. Uh, he wields a, another sacred sword called Galatine, which I will get to in a minute. Um, he also has a sibling named Gareth. Gareth is... I don't want to say less important, but uh, it's a bit sad what happens to Gareth because the main thing... Gareth really becomes important again in this quote-unquote third act towards the end of the story. Another knight is known as Sir I... Okay, it's Iwin. Ivan? Let me reload this. Read this. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, it's it's Y-W-A-I-N. So it's like Yawen or Ewen. Uh, I'm going to say Owen, I think, is a good is an acceptable pronunciation. He is a knight who is famous for traveling with a lion. Um, when I get to some of the more side stories, I will talk about Sir Owen and his lion later. Uh, there's also Agravain. There's uh, Mordred is also a very popular knight. Mordred is, for the purposes of the tale at this point, he is the son of Morgan Le Fay. The problematic thing about the son of Morgan Le Fay is, depending on the tradition, depends on who, who how gross it is that it's Morgan Le Fay, for example, in the traditions where Morgan Le Fay is Arthur's sister, uh, it's said that Mordred's evil comes from the fact that he is a product of incest between a brother and sister. Uh, in most traditions, um, true to form, Mordred is Arthur's bastard son, uh, but we haven't gotten to his wife yet. Uh, I'm sorry I keep burying the lead. I have a semi-timeline I'm trying to do here. I think the important thing to start touching on next is the Lady of the Lake. So once Arthur has gathered his knights and they are beginning to do their quests, Arthur realizes that a ceremonial sword ain't gonna fucking cut it. You know, you can't... The edge isn't as sharp. Um, you don't want to break a ceremonial sword because that's just bad form. So he is told by Merlin about the Lady of the Lake who gives out sacred swords. Sort of a weird one-stop shop for magical weapons. So Arthur and Gawain decide to go get some weapons because at this point... Uh, Although he's been made a Knight of the Round Table, uh, Gowan hasn't really have any stories to his name. So you figure the best way to start telling your own story is to get a big fuck-off sword, because uh, you gotta get some work done. So at the Lady of the Lake, she comes up bearing two swords. The first is Excalibur, which she gives to Arthur. It is an incredibly holy sword imbued by the power of the moon. 
And then to Gowan, she gives Galatine, the sister sword, which is imbued with the power of the sun. Because of this, um, in certain versions of the tale, uh, Gowan's power waxes and wanes with the rise and fall of the sun, being at its apex between like 11 and 1 when the sun's at its most powerful. And that's how he gets Excalibur. It's not in a rock. He gets it from the Lady of the Lake. At this point, I will now touch on some of these side stories uh, because these side stories happen intermittently around the one of the big tales we know about Arthur, which is the quest for the Grail. Um, but for narrative purposes, I'm just going to get them out of the way now so that we don't have to deal with them. And I will start with uh, Gowan, whose story is uh, incredibly popular and was, again, made into a A24 movie, uh, The Green Knight. So The Green Knight is my uh, new favorite Christmas movie because uh, it takes place... On Christmas Day, I'm going to kind of blend the movie and the poem together. We unfortunately, at this point in time, don't really have a concrete idea of who wrote the original uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, but eh, it, it's still a good fucking story. So the way the story goes is that uh, everyone is hanging out at a big Christmas feast and they're exchanging their tales of chivalry. But at this point, Gowan has gotten onto the round table through pure nepotism of being the nephew of the king and doesn't really have his own story to tell. In the movie, there's a fun little foreshadowing where the uh, queen, who at this point is Guinevere, um, but in the narrative I've done, we haven't met Guinevere yet, so uh, my bad. Uh, but she says, yeah, there are no stories yet. Uh, important thing to note, um, Gowan is played by Dev Patel, who is a fantastic actor and needs more work. Um, anywho, so during this Christmas feast, a massive Green Knight rides in. Uh, in the film, they really play up the nature aspect of him, having him be like a tree folk. Um, but in the original tale, he's just a big fuck-off knight in green armor. And he's like, let's play a game, all fucking weird jigsaw style. And he's like, here's my axe. Any of you may hit me and deal me a blow with this axe on the grounds that I may do the same wound to you in one year's time. So, the thing about folklore is that if you take 10 seconds to think about it, the smart thing to do would have been to take the axe and lightly cut him with like in the arm or something, instead of what happens. Because then you get a light cut on the arm, you get some salve, you know, there's fucking wizards, I'm sure they can heal you. Uh, Arthur's Excalibur for example, has healing properties. So there's no fucking reason where you couldn't have just given him a little nick, set him off his fucking way, and uh, there wouldn't be any issues. But uh, no. Everyone freezes up, and uh, because 
one of the big things that in Arthurian tradition is valor. The Green Knight calls them out on their shit. He's like, oh, you guys are so into fucking chivalry. You guys talk about honor and valor, but none of you have the bravery to accept my challenge. Do you guys like being knights or do you just like saying that you're knights? Uh, to which this gets a rise out of Arthur because chivalry is his big fucking thing. And in order to prevent the king from doing something stupid, Gawain grabs the axe and beheads the knight. Again, in a way, this makes some sense, because, like, if someone's threatening to do the same action to you a year from now, uh, you figure if you behead him, uh, there's not a good chance he's going to be able to behead you. But we're in uh, fancy mythological fairy times, and the Green Knight simply picks up his head, and he's like, Rad, all right, uh, Sir Gowan, I will see you in a year to cut your head off. Um, obviously, Gowan is uh, super fucking rattled by this because uh, he essentially has been told he has one year left to live. Uh, but uh, instead of, you know, comforting their friend, uh, everybody talks about how fucking rad it is that he just sliced off that head and protected the king. So a year passes and we're at the story picks up again. It is the uh solstice so he's got four days to travel to the green chapel to meet the green knight to accept his fate and off gowan goes to accept his fate as a true knight because knights have to be honest so the film and the story have very differing accounts about what happens to gowan during this journey um the film does play up a little more with the fairy tale aspects. There is, concurrent in both, there is this story of St. Matilda, I believe is her name. It's one of those really old M names. A woman who was beheaded because, if I'm remembering correctly, and I apologize to anybody who is in any form of the Christian faith for completely probably butchering the story of a saint, but the, her story went is that she was deciding to devote herself to God. But her father didn't realize she was devoting herself to God and arranged a marriage for her. Uh, when the her potential suitor came, she's like, nah, dude, I'm devoting myself to God. I'm married to Jesus. He's like, the fuck you are. And he cut off her head and threw it in a, a well. Because if he couldn't have her, no one could. Because gotta love some good old-fashioned toxic masculinity. Um, so in the tale of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, it is, there is a, often a, an aside where Gowan finds Matilda's head and returns it to her spirit so she can be whole again, because she's a saint, like, she can perform miracles, the, it, I believe the well where her head is thrown is said to have healing properties, but, you know, in order to be, it, goes with that often that f inherent human fear of not being able to rest in death properly because your body's in multiple pieces. So a little time passes and he stumbles upon a castle. At this point it's been a couple days and he still hasn't he doesn't even know where the green chapel is because of course beheaded knights don't give you maps He's just like, just come to the Green Chapel. And it's like, cool, where the fuck is that? But he founds a castle. 
and he walks in and the king is very gracious and charitable and he's like look you're very tired the green chapel is like maybe an hour's journey from here you need your rest you may stay in my castle i love to fucking hunt he that man loves to fucking hunt and he's like i will go out and hunt and i will hunt an animal extra when i get back to the castle anything you receive while in the castle resting i will trade you the extra animal for this is actually a very sweet fucking deal for gowan because you figure everything that's in the castle is already the king's so essentially he's like you can have free room and board and i'll feed you but you and you can feel like you earned what i'm giving you which is like really fucking nice of him and it's really it shows like some great hospitality um but of course it gets twisted so uh gowan's like thank you and he's like i'm going to fucking sleep <laughs> i am tired and next thing he knows while he's sleeping he hears the pitter patter of the queen the queen who is very smitten with gowan so the queen tries to come on to gowan and he's just like no 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 you're married i am a guest here it is improper of me to fuck my host's wife considering she has been so gracious to me and she's just like come on and he's like no and she manages to steal a kiss before he fully chases her out of his chambers when the king arrives he's like okay i have this boar what did you get in the castle and gowan gives him a kiss because it is the one thing he received while he was there now here's a point of contention and i am not the first one to bring up this point in the film on the third day dave patel retrieves a hand job spoilers for the green knight by the way sorry and in theory dave patel owes that man a hand job because that he received that in the castle he's got to give him everything he receives he already messes up on the deal but he owes that man a hand job but anyway in the traditional fairy tale rule of threes uh, gowan stays there for three days and he receives multiple kisses but on the third day the queen is like let me give you a ring as a token of our time together and he's like a we didn't have time together you just kept kissing me while i was chasing you out of my fucking room and b i cannot get a ring from you because i have to give the king everything i receive and he's gonna know something's fucking up if i give him a ring from his wife so in the story she gives him a green sash which is said to protect the wearer from harm and then a light bulb goes off because it seems like it's a kind of a loophole for gowan to be like i mean there's nothing about not having a sash of invincibility when i get my head when he comes to cut my head off like he didn't really make it clear that he was an immortal being who would survive getting his head cut off so i also am allowed to do some fuckery so he does accept the sash and when the king comes and in the film this is when he's owed the hand job but in the story he simply gives him three kisses 
And he then says, I have to thank you for your hospitality. I am off to the Green Chapel. So a one of the pages is assigned to him to lead him to the Green Chapel to make sure he can find it easily. And the page is like, hey, so like, you know, if you run off, no one's going to blame you because you're literally going to get your fucking head cut off. And Gawain's like, no, I have to be a chivalrous knight and a face this head on, even though I am 100% lying through my fucking teeth and I have a workaround. In the film, there is this interesting sequence where uh, Dave Patel kind of, you get a vision of what would happen if Dave Patel ran for it. Uh, but that's not what happens in the story. So the following part of the story I'm going to tell you is not what happens in the film. I also want to, case in point, is as I was saying this, uh, the fun thing about Stream of Consciousness is I just remembered the king's name is fucking Bertalock. Um, so uh, my bad uh, for getting his name until just now. Anywho, so Gowan makes it to a large tree. And the page is like, here's the green court. And he's like, are you fucking with me? And he's like, I am not fucking with you. This is the green court. Like, I don't know what you want from me. And inside the tree, Gowan hears the sound of a whetstone sharpening an axe. And he's like, oh shit, this is the fucking green chapel. So he enters the tree and the green knight's like, ah ha ha. I see you've come for your punishment. He's like, yeah, we had a deal. I cut off your head. You cut off my head. So Gowan kneels down and assumes the good old-fashioned beheading position. And the Green Knight takes a swing, but he stops right before his neck. And Gowan flinches, um, as any fucking reasonable human being would uh, from about to be getting their head cut off. And uh, because of this being some old-fashioned bullshit, the uh, Green Knight starts making fun of him. And it's just like, haha, you're scared of your own mortality. And he's like, bitch, fucking, can we get this over with? <laughs> so Gowan kneels once more, and the Green Knight goes to cut him, cut off his head, but something happens, and the blade only nicks Gowan's neck. So Gowan stands up, he's like, you nicked my neck, quit fucking with me. At this point, I'm, I, I'm considering the deal taken care of. I scratched your neck, you scratched mine. Like, this is bullshit, quit fucking with me. I came here to do what I was supposed to do. It is then revealed that the Green Knight is King Bertalock. And he's like, I know my wife gave you the Sash of Invincibility and that it wouldn't work. But you still were willing, but you were still willing to come here before you got that Sash. So you are a true worthy knight and I will consider our deal done. Uh, the downside is is that uh, Gowan, however, feels really fucking shitty about it because one of those codes of chivalry is honesty, and he spent most of this fucking time lying to everybody. He lied to the king about where he was getting kisses, he was going to lie to the Green Knight about his sa the invincibility sash, he had the chance to fucking skip out. So in all depictions of Gowan past the tale of the Green Knight, it is said that he wears a green sash tied around his arm as a reminder of his in his impropriety. But 
in true fuck you fashion uh, to show in traditions that are trying to kind of use the Arthurian canon as a way to take the piss out of chivalric tradition. Uh, all of the knights see Gawain's triumphant return with the sash on and are like, that is the coolest thing ever. And they all begin to wear sashes on their arm, not realizing that that sash is a constant reminder of the way that Gowan was not a chivalrous knight. Now next I will go over the tale of Owen and his big ass fucking lion. So Owen, uh, technically in the traditions where Morgan Le Fay is the sister of Arthur, is another one of Arthur's nephews because Owen is most of the time the child of Morgan Le Fay and King Urien. I have no idea who that is. Uh, so, one of the things that happens is the reason Owen becomes a knight is because his cousin, Calgorinent, was defeated by a knight in a forest. And he's like, uh uh, that shit ain't gonna fly. I'm gonna go kill this knight. Uh, that knight name is Escaldalos, who w lives in the forest of Broselande and is surrounded by storms. So one day, uh, Owen is like, time to get my revenge. It goes in and he slays the knight Escalos, but then is met by Escalos's beautiful widow, whose name is Laudine. And he immediately falls in love with her. Uh, it's hard to talk about what happens next on the grounds of it's a bit fucked up. That he's like, well, I killed your husband. Would you like to be my wife? And it is only through the assistance of Lynette, uh, Laudine's servant, that she finally relents and is like, fine, I'll marry you. Uh, clearly, you have the power to protect me since you killed my last fucking husband. Um, so once he has his job is done, he's like, cool. I have avenged my brother, not brother, cousin. It's time to settle down with this, uh, my new wife. Uh, but uh, who pops in but a Gowan? And he's like, hey, the knights of the round table are going questing. We have this big quest. Would you like to come along? And he goes to his wife and he's like, I've been called to the, by the king and his nephew that there's going to be a big quest and they want to know if I can go. And Laudine is like, we just got fucking married. But if you promise to return within two years, you may go on this quest. Because I'm going to be bored. And the worst part is, is I'm going to be here, your wife, having already been widowed once. While you go on a dangerous journey, you haven't put a kid in me. So, since this is the 600s, I'm going to be essentially fucking useless. So, you need to make sure you come back in two years. If you're not back in two years, don't bother coming back at all. And he's like, yes, ma'am. So, off he pops, and he goes and he hangs out. He helps out on the uh, two quests that I have written down. And again, the Arthurian tradition is messy, so there is a chance 
that in the versions you've heard he wasn't part of these quests but uh i'm the one with the microphone so this is how it's gonna work uh where he is one of the knights who helps escort guinevere to camelot and he is uh, part of the grail quest which we will touch on in a bit however uh good old owen loses track of time and he arrives two years and a month back to his home and Laudine is like, you had one fucking job. So she doesn't let him in. She's like, you are not allowed to enter my castle. You are not entering my castle in the metaphorical and literal sense. Get the fuck out. He is driven mad with grief because he does truly love her. And it was, it was out of his control a little bit that he wasn't able to arrive home on time. But he's like, okay, the best thing I can do is I have uh, fucked up the uh, Chivalric Code because I wasn't there when my wife needed me. So now I suppose I will go and just try to fucking be as good a knight as I can be. I, uh, I will try to show my loyalty to my wife by the fact that although I cannot be with her, she is the only woman for me, and I will go and do all these good deeds. Um, so he does one of those fun things that uh, men in stories do when they, uh, they can't be with their lover, and they just start doing stupid, crazy shit with, a, with reckless abandon. Because they are so in love, but they can't be with their lovers, so why fucking bother living? And uh, one of these things that Owen does is right outside the castle, there is a den for lions. The uh, lion, famously indigenous to uh, the English coast, but uh, we'll kind of ignore that thing because there are no fucking lions in Europe, but I digress. And he sees a poisonous snake is sneaking up on this lion. And fucking stuck between a lion and a snake. Fucking what's Owen got to lose? His wife won't let him into the house. So he protects the lion and kills the snake. Uh, the lion, being very impressed by his bravery and valor, uh, does like a cat bow to him and becomes his companion. Um, I'm not 100% on how lions work, but I do have my own cat, and let me fucking tell you, um, they are, they can be very loyal, but there is no way this lion would just follow him around and be good and behave and not cause issues, because at its core, it's a fucking cat, and although cats are the superior species to humans they still fuck about anyway so after seeing this display of i mean some would call it bravery others would call it reckless fucking foolishness uh laudine decides that he can come home and owen and laudine uh and the lion uh live happily ever after the next tale before we get to the massive grail quest i'm going to tell is the 
moving of Guinevere. So there are three knights. No, sorry. There are four knights involved in the moving of Guinevere. So in order to make an alliance with a foreign nation, uh, Guinevere is uh, arranged to be married to Arthur. So four knights are going to pick her up. Two of which I just fucking realized I've barely mentioned at all, which is slightly problematic. Uh, but you have Lancelot. Uh, you have Percival, who is a, another knight and is in uh, some of the older traditions, but as the stories advance and change, he gets cut out and becomes part of Galahad's character. Um, there's Galahad. In some, in the version of the story I'm telling, Owen is also part of the travel with Guinevere, but in some versions it's uh, Bedivere. Uh, Bedivere, who becomes more important much later on, and we'll get to him later. Uh, so one of the fun stories that we get from this, like, moving of Guinevere to Camelot is there's this point where the knights are transporting her through a forest, and it's very dark and spooky. And all of a sudden, a ghost appears, and it's the figure of a woman, and she has two frogs suckling at her breasts. So medieval ghosts are complicated, and a lot of times are used to be like, don't be a sinner, because in hell they have fun and ironic punishments that you'll be stuck with for the rest of your life. Um, this ghost, in particular, is used as a foreshadowing element also, because this ghost is the ghost of Guinevere's mother. Guinevere com Guinevere's mother comes, and she's got these two frogs suckling at her teats, and she's just like, Gwen, I've come to warn you that adultery is bad and you should only be loyal to your husband uh, i was disloyal to your father i held many suitors behind his back and now i am doomed for eternity to have frogs sucking on my titties um i have no idea why it's frogs some medieval manuscripts consider frogs serpents and then you got that whole serpents uh Adam and Eve kind of shit, but uh, I don't know. She's got frog titties, and it's a rough time. And essentially, she's like, Gwen, it doesn't matter how good the dick is. You have to stay with your husband. Do not fuck around. Um, which is some fun foreshadowing for later, if you know how the Arthurian legends go. Um, once they are wed... There is finally the quest for the grail. Uh, Arthur receives it in the movie. There's the, you know, divine visitation uh, where the cardboard cutout of God tells Arthur to go seek out the holy grail and to stop groveling. He is so tired of people fucking groveling. Um, in every single tradition... Arthur never is the one who actually finds the grail. In the older traditions, Sir Percival is the one who actually finds the grail. And if I'm remembering correctly, although I could be wrong, Percival is also the, in Quest for Camelot, is the main character's father who dies. 
that's Sir Percival. Percival does get a lot of shit and does get knocked out. Uh, Percival is also the uh, name inspiration for the uh, Harry Potter book in the seventh one. Um, but uh, we're not going to go into all the problematic things about J.K. Rowling today because this podcast is already almost an hour and I do not have the fucking time. Um, so uh, one of the key figures in later traditions that does find the grail is Sir Galahad. Uh, Galahad the Pure, he sometimes is part of like a weird sibling trio with Gareth and Gawain, you know, they're all the kids are named it's like those weird things parents do where like i have three kids and their names all begin with the same letter like how they did in charmed where it was you know prue piper phoebe and then later page like they all had began with the same letter uh galahad also uh is a key figure in the monty python and the holy grail he is the one who actually sees the grail shaped beacon at the top of castle anthrax um of course in that story um it makes fun of the fact that uh, most of the uh knights of the round table are very easily uh tempted and uh there is a moment where galahad is tempted by an orgy uh with all the women of castle anthrax to give you know so for uh spankings and oral sex uh which of course Ga he is quote-unquote rescued by Lancelot because in the tradition Galahad is the one who finds the grail because of his pure soul he does a uh, fun side note uh touching back on that whole thing where some people uh, some Arthurian scholars believe that Lancelot was bi and also had like a weird love for uh, Lancelot there is also this throwaway line at the end of the cancel anthrax scene where uh, Galahad calls Lancelot gay for not letting him stay there and gets sucked off by like 40 women. But in most traditions, um, it is Galahad who finds the Grail. But the Grail quest is sort of the beginning to the end because while gallivanting around England trying to find the Holy Grail, even though it would make more sense that the Grail would be in Jerusalem where the Last Supper happened, but uh, nationalism. So Lancelot is assigned to be the Queen's protector because he is the most virtuous and the uh, most strong of the knights, uh, which sort of backfires because uh, Gwen didn't listen to her mother and... Uh, she starts fucking Lancelot. So her and Lancelot begin having an affair. Um, so some of this tradition, it, this is heavily in the French tradition, partially due to the fact of the French love the concept of a French knight coming out of nowhere and stupping the king's wife because, hell yeah, stick it to the English by having the English king being cuckolded by a Frenchman. Um, there's also the uh thing where like lancelot uh is a can be taken as a double entendre of you know he who fucks um and of course gwen didn't learn the lesson that no matter how good that dick is uh, stay loyal to your husband uh but it's not her fault a lot of places like to uh, make gwen the problem but uh it takes two to tango so this 
affair with Guinevere is the beginning of the end of the Arthurian legend, the Arthurian canon and stories, because um, Gareth finds out, and in the tra in certain traditions, Lancelot kills Gareth because he's the he walked in on him and the queen. Um, which is very problematic and it is said that because Lancelot turned his blade his actual blade not his figurative blade we're not in the we're gonna we need to step out of the double entendres um since he used a drawn knight on Gareth the sword is forever cursed because it has been desecrated with another knight's blood um there's plenty of double entendres that can be going on there's a lot of thrusting and uh, stabbing but uh you know we don't have to go there. Um, anyway, I got very distracted there. So Guinevere, uh, so this drives Gawain to madness. And it's very hard because no, uh, Gawain knows what happens. And Lancelot knows what happens, obviously. Um, so it's very tense at the court. And Lancelot and Gawain are very just like eyeing each other down. And the best way I can assume with some editorializing on my part um, is I imagine just one time, uh, you know, Lancelot tried to call Gawain out on something being like, oh, well, you know, after the whole Green Knight incident, you are known as the Ladies Knight because you are often... Uh, helping maidens in distress and by the time you're done with them they're no longer maidens and uh, probably Gawain fired back with like well at least I'm not fucking the queen um, which begins a civil war in the um, court Arthur uh, being ever the uh, pragmatist and uh, totally good at solving his own problems he decides that he's going off to Canterbury to pray and to seek guidance on uh, what the hell to do, because his most loyal knight is shut up in his wife, he can't trust his wife anymore, and he doesn't know what to do. So Arthur leaves, which is not a good problem, not a good sign, because obviously when there is civil unrest, the best thing for the king to do is get the fuck out of there. Now, seeing this moment of weakness, in walks Mordred, and he's like, sup, sup, sup. Well, clearly... Arthur doesn't know what he's doing. He didn't realize that his wife's getting fucked by another man um, because, you know, God knows Lancelot loves Arthur so much that they need to be tunnel buddies. Um, if you don't know what that means, look it up. And obviously, and he's so ineffective as a king that he left instead of dealing with the knights fighting. Um, so I should be in charge. I'm his son. Big plot reveal and I should be king. So Mordred stages this large takeover. In some traditions, Mordred stages this takeover when Arthur actually goes to Rome, because there are some traditions, more of the English traditions, have him going to Rome and, like, consulting the Pope. Um, realistically, that's a bit off but again magic and all that other shit so who knows but uh, either way Arthur leaves to try to consult a holy figure and Mordred's like okay 
Kingdom's mine now. Which brings to the battle uh the hill of Camelane. I have no idea if I'm saying that right. C-A-M-L-A-N-N. It is at this point where Arthur is not using Excalibur because um, he's got this weird thing about it where it's like, clearly, if I was such a holy king, I wouldn't be cuckolded by my best friend. And he's been using the spear. Oh, God. Rongo Maniad. Because Arthur has a whole legion of weapons. Uh, he's got so you know he's already got two swords. He's got a spear. Um, in the Welsh tradition, he actually has a magical datter called Carna Wenin, uh, which he uses to kill the daughter of a witch by cutting her in half. Which makes no fucking sense how you cut a witch in half with a dagger, but uh, I don't know. Get with yourselves the Welsh tradition, I guess. I don't know. I'm not in love with your witch hating, but whatever. But uh. Rongo Maniad is a holy spear, um, which is also uh, in the Welsh tradition from Arthur. And it is often do it's interesting because it's a holy spear that has no magical properties whatsoever. It's just a really holy spear. Um, it's often compared to the spear of Longinus or Longinus, uh, which was the one that was allegedly used to pierce Christ. Um, I guess like a sister spear because all weapons are female, uh, even though they're phallic objects, which is a weird association my brain just made right there. Uh, straight consciousness, fun. So, uh, Mordred and uh, Arthur meet and their forces fight. Meanwhile, over at the Gareth's grave, Lancelot. Uh, to try to make amends, comes and sees Gowan, and Gowan's like, fuck you, buddy. And uh, they kill each other on Gowan's grave. Not Gowan's grave. Kill each other on Gareth's grave. Uh, Guinevere is now... has no idea what to do, because her side piece is dead. Her husband knows that she's been cheating on him. She knows from her mother that there's a good chance she's going to hell now. But I don't know what happens to her i'd have to look that up um but arthur uh slays mordred on the hill of Camlane using Camlane, not Camlane, uh Camlane, uh using rongo maniad and but in the process is mortally wounded by um mordred's sword which is known as clarent which is arguably a lame name for a sword, in my opinion, but I, I wasn't around 1,400 years ago to help name swords. So this is where Bedivere really comes into the play, because Bedivere is the strongest... Not the strongest, he's one of the smartest knights of the Round Table. In uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, we see a lot of his intelligence. He's first met in the scene of uh, figuring out whether or not someone's a witch, uh, because if she weighs as much as a duck, she is made of wood, and if she is made of wood, she burns, and what do we burn? Witches. Um, Bedivere is also the most loyal of the knights, whereas he is the one who stays with Arthur the entire film, and is actually arrested with Arthur at the end of the film for the murder of some random dude that they didn't kill. What happens is, is that Bedivere was with Arthur 
during the battle of Cam Lane and Arthur gives him Excalibur and he's like, I need you to return this to the Lady of the Lake because I do not want to incur sword late fees as I'm dying. And uh, he's like, I trust you with this job, Bedivere, because you are my most loyal knight. And uh, in true fashion of these knights can't do anything right, uh, Bedivere fucks it up three times. Uh, The first time he travels like a hundred feet, walks back, and he's like, I'm done. And Arthur's like, you couldn't have gotten to the fucking lake in that amount of time. Don't mess with me. Go throw the sword in the goddamn lake. Um, The second time Bedivere gets to the lake... Uh, but doesn't do it. He then walks back with the sword and tries to give it back to Arthur because he's like, the scabbard will heal Arthur. And he's like, if, you know, the kingdom needs a king. And Arthur's like, the kingdom does need a king, but I am not that king. Go get rid of the fucking sword. So on the third attempt, Bedivere does return the sword to the Lady of the Lake. And that is when Arthur is said to die and go to Avalon, the land of the fairies. And it is considered the end of the chivalric tradition in Europe. And there you have it. That is a messy kind of slapdash uh, telling of the Arthurian canon. I'm sure there's things I've gotten wrong. I'm sure that the parts of the story are not the way you grew up with them. But uh, that's kind of the fun thing about mythology and folklore is... Um, there is really no true way for you to have like the correct or the most complete story. Uh, Mythology and folklore is what you make of it. And um, this may have been a bit messy at times. Um, My sources uh, were just the story I already knew coupled with um, the movie Quest for Camelot, the 1975 film Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Um, some things I googled, and also uh, some descriptions from the Fate Grand Order descriptions of some of the heroes in this story that I collaborated, um, not collaborated, I, you know, looked up some actual sourcing to see where they got that information from, because, um, The Fate Grand Order game likes to take a lot of liberty with their characters. For example, in that uh, game, not only is uh, all of the King Arthurs actually female, uh, there's versions where if King Arthur used the lance instead of the sword, uh, it uh, changed the physical form. And then there's also another alternate that they did, which is if instead of being chosen by the sword of selection uh arthur decided to learn magic under merlin and so there's like a mage one so it's a whole mess but they really like the welsh tradition which is where i got some of my sourcing from that um but at the end of the day arthur is the kind of thing where you get to kind of choose what you want from it and that's kind of what we get to do with all stories like this because At the end of the day, everyone really likes a good story of, like, a king of knights and his loyal troop of, frankly, bumbling fucking idiots and what they can get done. Um, Yeah, this this one was a little longer and a little more rambly, um, but I hope you really enjoyed it. Um, Let me know uh, if you liked 
this kind of lore dump kind of thing um you can contact me uh via uh tiktok i am white trash historian i am also a swamp cleric on instagram and uh, i really hope you enjoyed this episode and uh thank you so much for getting to the end of this um and thank you for spending a good hour with me all right i'll see you next time it probably won't be uh almost a month this time but uh i will make no promises all right have a good day bye